Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, finishing up this section of parables and our exposition of Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 4 and verses 30 through 34. Please join with me in prayer. Lord God, help us now, O Lord, to hear thy word, to love it, to obey it, to relish and delight in it. O Lord, that we would glorify thee with our lives. Lord, help us to trust in thee for our own salvation, of course, but even more so for the work which thou hast given us to do, the preaching of the gospel, the expanding of the kingdom of God, thy kingdom, O Lord. Lord, that we would work as thou workest in and through us. Help us to love the church, to love thy bride as thou lovest her. To be mindful of heavenly things, not earthly. In whatever earthly station we are, we would seek to do some good for thee, Jesus. Mm. O Holy Spirit, help us. Help us to be great lovers of thee. Great lovers. Great dependers upon thee, Holy Spirit. Jesus, that thy name would be lifted up on high, exalted through our lives. May that be our, our heart's desire, God, our goal, our chief end, to glorify and enjoy thee. May thy word, graciously given, inspired and preserved and handed down to us, be our food. Sweeter than the honeycomb, worth more than all money, all silver and gold, is thy word, thy commandments, thy law, thy statutes, thy gospel is sweet to our taste. Help us to taste and see that thou art good, O God. Help thou me. O help, God. In Jesus' name, amen. title of our sermon is The Expanding Kingdom, The Expanding Kingdom. Dear congregation, I watched a documentary last night called Enemies Within the Church. Maybe it was the night before. I was very angry while watching this. It's a story about a church in Naples, Florida. First Baptist Church, Southern Baptist Church, and how wokeism, a new religion, has subverted the gospel in that place and the abuse that went along with it towards the members of that church. And as I watched it, I thought, you know, our times seem bleak. It's as though the church is failing sometimes. The PCA. The SBC, even many reformed peoples, 
have been caught up with this new false religion called wokeness, wokeism, wokeanity. However, we need not fear. Dear congregation, we need not fear. The world has always predicted the end of Christianity, the end of the church, the dismantling and the destruction of the kingdom of God. And it has even worked diligently towards that goal. Always. But rather than, di- rather than diminishing, Christianity has actually only increased. Has only increased. Remember that great Herod? He could not stamp out Christianity, though he did his best to slay the babe Christ. Pilate, by crucifying Jesus, rather than destroying Christianity, only set it in motion. The scribes and the Pharisees only saw the teaching of the apostles spread more with each beating, each stoning, each imprisonment. The apostle Paul's imprisonment itself brought the gospel to all of the Mediterranean and gave the world half of the New Testament. The fiery Nero only fanned the flames of Christianity's growth by his bitter persecutions. Or even worse, the Diocletian persecution pushed the gospel further throughout all of Europe. Instead of just being in the Mediterranean now, it pushed it all the way through Europe. The Roman Empire's futile attempt to destroy Christianity ended in her acceptance of it as the only and official creed of the empire. The Catholic Church lost the world by putting the reformers to the sword. A multitude of rationalists, deists, and enlightenment philosophers chirped throughout their entire life that Christianity would expire before they died, only to twist and groan on their deathbed, saying, Oh God, if there is a God, save my soul, if I have a soul, from hell, if there is a hell. It's a direct quote from one of the most famous. Nietzsche said, God is dead, and we have killed him. Yet now God says, Nietzsche is dead, And I remain the great I am. Yes, Christ's church is still upon the earth. And it's still growing in spite of all of this. Nothing, dear congregation, nothing shall overcome the church. Why? Jesus has prayed for her. Jesus has prayed for her. She shall prevail. Remember, our Jesus goes forth conquering and to conquer. Our Jesus does. The gates of hell shall not be able to repulse the onslaught of Jesus Christ's kingdom through the church. No matter how small her beginnings were, she has prevailed and she shall prevail still. The next parable, now before us, The parable of the mustard seed comes in the context of the former parables that Jesus is speaking. We have seen the parable of the sower and of the light, which teaches us about man's responsibility in advancing God's kingdom. Man's responsibility. We studied the parable of the seed's growth overnight 
which expounded to us that sovereign power of God in and through the advancing of his kingdom. Now, we come to study the parable of the mustard seed, which opens up to us the resulting harvest when both man's responsibility and God's sovereign power are engaged to advance the kingdom of God. Remember, God works through means. Mark chapter 4, verses 30 through 34. And he, Jesus, said, Whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what comparison shall we compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when it is sown in the earth, is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. But when it is sown, it groweth up and becometh greater than all the herbs, and shooteth out great branches, so that the fowls of the air may lodge under the shadow of it. With many such parables spake he the word unto them, as they were able to hear it. But without a parable spake he not unto them. And when they were alone, he expounded all things to his disciples. A note about Christ's care and teaching. See this in verse 30. Whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God, Jesus said? Or with what comparison shall we compare it? Christ always took great care in teaching and expounding the truths of the kingdom of heaven. Not a single word is wasted. None ever spoke as he. None ever spoke as Jesus spoke. With such authority, with such relevance, with such proper and fitting allusions for the hour. He was not hasty in explaining spiritual truths. He was careful, choosing only the best for his gospel purposes. His word was never delivered in the wrong way or at the wrong time. He always considered, whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God? Let us seek, like the Apostle Paul, to pray that utterance may be given unto us at the right time, that God would open up doors and opportunities for us to speak the gospel, a gospel word that is fitting for that season, for that hour, for that moment. Dear Christian, pray thus, O Lord, open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, Ephesians 6.19. Now, there are also a few interpretive issues concerning this parable, the parable of the mustard seed. What is a mustard seed? Well, it's the smallest of all seeds. Yet, from it springs one of the largest and most invasive plants in all of Africa or the Middle East. Starting as a small bush, once it's sprouted and grown, it can grow up to 15 feet high, with its bows going out 10 feet. It's massive. If a mustard seed falls into a crop, the plant will overtake the field and destroy the harvest. Though a bush, it's better described as a dense tree. But, What does this mustard plant, this mustard seed, represent in the parable? There's a few different ways people have seen it. Some say it represents each individual believer. That in the process of sanctification, he grows and he flourishes. Others say the church. That throughout her existence, she is protected and cared for by the Lord until she permeates all the world, growing stronger and larger and more pervasive. 
I think that both are acceptable, but the most natural interpretation, in my opinion, is that of the church. We will make application to both, however, as we proceed. We observe three lessons from the parable of the mustard seed. Number one, small beginnings. Small beginnings. Number two, expansive growth. Expansive growth. Small beginnings and expansive growth. Number three, the means of expansion. The means of expansion. Small beginnings, expansive growth, the means of expansion. First, small beginnings. And we need to learn to despise them not. Verse 31. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when it is sown in the earth, is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. The mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. It is despised when looked at. Despised. Nothing great is esteemed of it. It's a mere pebble, a tiny pebble. No one would think that such a great plant, a massive 15-foot-tall and 10-foot-wide bush would come from it, from such a small, insignificant seed. But every eastern farmer would know the foolishness of underestimating a mustard seed. So too the church. So too the church. The church began lowly and despised, but has arisen to take the entire world under its influence. Let us learn a few things. First, God is the God of bringing much from nothing. God is the God of bringing much from nothing. The world considers small beginnings, small starts, to be of little value. They are much despised by it. It is foolishness and weakness unto the world, a small beginning. But God does not think small beginnings are a base thing. In fact, it is his preferred method of beginning. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29, But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised, God has chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. God's own glory, remember, is his chief design. For his own namesake he doth all things. And nothing quite glorifies God like bringing greatness from nothingness, strong and strength from weakness, wisdom from foolishness. Biblical history makes this clear, that God is the God of bringing much from nothing. God created all things ex nihilo, out of nothing, from nothing, by the mere word of his power, God created all things in heaven and in earth. From only two people, Adam and Eve, and you could even argue just from Adam, because that's where Eve was taken, came the countless billions of humans who have ever lived or ever shall live. From Noah and the eight with him, who were delivered by God's mercy, came all the souls now living upon the earth. 
from Abraham, a mere shepherd in a heathen land, despised, came the mighty nation of Israel, and through his loins all the people of faith. From Moses, a child, abandoned, left for dead, in a little ark in the Nile River, came deliverance for the millions of Jews that were enslaved in Egypt. From Joshua came entrance and possession of the promised land. From David, a lowly shepherd boy, the youngest and the weakest of seven brothers, came an everlasting kingdom. From a bastard born and laid in a manger in Bethlehem, then raised in Nazareth, from which no good thing can even come, came the God-man, Christ Jesus, the Savior of his people. From a few poor, uneducated, and despised fishermen, the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ came. From a mere 120 souls gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem came the international church that within 50 years contained hundreds of thousands of members throughout the known world. God is the God of bringing much from nothing. Let us look at one of those in particular, that from Jesus of Nazareth came salvation. None so lowly as Christ. None. This made him meek. Although God in the flesh, he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross, Philippians 2, 7 and 8. Jesus was that Messiah, the coming Savior of Israel, who should save his people from their sins, deliver them from their oppressors, and establish his everlasting kingdom upon the earth. The Jews knew this. And yet, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And He came unto his own, and his own received him not. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Word of God, who was with God and was God, took on flesh and dwelt among his people. He was the light of the world, but they loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. He was born in Bethlehem, but there was no room made for him in the end. The king of glory was laid in a manger. He lived out the vast majority, except for a brief portion at the end of his life, in complete obscurity, working as a lowly carpenter in Nazareth, a town so insignificant, so despised, that the only place it is ever mentioned in all of history is in the New Testament, and only because Jesus came from there. Nazareth. In fact, as we just read, the common sentiment was that nothing of importance could ever possibly come from Nazareth. Yet, this is where our Jesus chose to live out his life, only coming out from it to reveal his glory unto the children of men. Small beginning indeed. If there was any who had a small beginning, if there was any who represented a mustard seed, It was Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. Who would have thought that the carpenter of Nazareth would be the king of glory? A carpenter of Nazareth, picture it, approaches those ancient doors, those ancient doors, having accomplished the work which his father had given him to do. And he declares that he, the carpenter of Nazareth, is the king of glory. We need not wonder at the astonishment. Who is this king of glory? Answered a voice from within. And then we have Christ's response. The Lord, Jehovah, strong and mighty. Jehovah, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come in. We too can ask, who is this king of glory? The only answer we shall receive is that Jesus of Nazareth, or the Lord of hosts, is the king of glory. So the sinless Christ, our King Jesus, born in obscurity and living in perfection to love God, died for us that we might be reconciled to him. Those who despised him killed him. But being risen and and now reigning, we, for whom he died, love him and believe upon his name. Those who thought lowly of him He now thinks lowly of them in exaltation. Those who thought lowly of his small beginnings, he thinks lowly of in his exaltation. But to us who are saved, he is esteemed above all things. And we now say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1, 21. Can also then pull from this and examine small beginnings in our own life. Small beginnings in our own lives. From a babe to a grown person. From a student to a teacher. From an employee to an owner. Most people who are born know what it is to start from lowly beginnings. Now, we may and we even must have plans and pursuits in our lives. We cannot just sit around doing nothing. But we must commit those plans, those purposes, those goals to the Lord. We do not despise the day of small things. We improve them. We all wish to serve the Lord in this room. I believe that. And we shall serve the Lord in whatever sphere he places us. That is where we are to serve the Lord. Now, some of you desire to be surgeons, some business owners, ministers, homeowners, mothers and fathers, husbands and wives. But all of you are even now, right now, placed in some sphere where you can do much good for the Lord. You can do much good for the Lord now where you are. If you do not serve him now, in fact... then you shall not be prepared to serve him then when your plans and goals have been met. I personally have found that the majority of Christian impotence, which believers so often struggle with, so much unhappiness, so much uselessness in the Christian faith, stems from a mindset that looks only to the future. 
It only looks to the future. What I wish I had, what I hope to have, what I'm going to do. I must work hard to get where I need to be that I may serve the Lord then. That I may serve the Lord then. I cannot serve the Lord where I'm at now. I have nothing to do for Jesus in my current state. Ah, dear friend, you may do something, even great things, here where you are now at your small beginning. Spurgeon once said this, quote, cannot do anything? Cannot do anything? Where does this man come from that cannot do anything? There's a spider on the wall, but he taketh hold on king's palaces, and he spinneth his web to rid the world of noxious flies. There's a nettle in the corner of the churchyard, but the physician tells me that even it has virtues. There is a tiny star in the sky, but even that is noted in the chart, and the mariner looks at it. There is an insect under the water, but it builds a rock. God made all things for something. But here is a man that God has made and given him nothing to do at all. I do not believe it. God never makes useless things. He has no superfluous workmanship. I care not what you are. You have somewhat to do. So even now, even now, whatever your station in life is, dear believer, you can look to what is in front of you And whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might. Ecclesiastes 9.10 The Christian is not to look to future service only and do nothing but hate his current situation. He is to supplicate God in his present condition and say with the Apostle Paul, as he did on the Damascus Road, What shall I do, Lord? What shall I do? That's what the Christian is to do. How many countless souls, I ask you, how many countless souls have been won to Jesus Christ by just one Christian placed in a seemingly insignificant place in life by simply sharing the words of life with someone else? I don't think the number can even be counted. Because from that saved person will come others and others and others. An insignificant youth of 15 wanders into an insignificant Methodist church in the middle of a blizzard. And in that insignificant Methodist church, he hears an insignificant sermon from an insignificant deacon. And from this situation, he believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He looked and was saved. And he became the prince of preachers, who has since been the means of salvation for countless hundreds of thousands of souls. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Dear Christian, do not run your mouth against the Lord for your current situation. Rather, run your mouth for the Lord in your current situation. Do not despise the humble beginnings that you may be in. You know not what God shall do with it if you are faithful with the little that he has given thee. Second, expansive growth. Expansive growth. 
Verse 32. Then when, when it is sown, it groweth up and becometh greater than all herbs, and shooteth out great branches, so that the fowls of the air may lodge under the shadow of it. Though her beginnings were meager, dear congregation, in the past 2,000 years, the church of Jesus Christ has overtaken the entire world. Think about that. There is not a single region on this planet that you can go, but you will find some that call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has not always been this way, nor to the same extent. Some places, as we know, have lain in darkness much longer than others. And others that were once shining lights upon the earth, Europe, America, have fallen back into darkness. The expansion of God's kingdom is progressive and incremental. We can prove this text, these words of Christ, by briefly tracing the history of the church. First, remember that he says the seed is sown into the earth. After Christ's resurrection, he instructs his disciples to tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high, Acts 24 or Acts 4, 49. Then, on the day of Pentecost, it says they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, at that time, Jerusalem was filled with visitors, sojourners, people coming from all over the area to worship at the temple. And yet the church only had 120 members. 120 members. What good could it do? Jerusalem is overrun with people coming to worship. And they're worshiping the Lord incorrectly. But what can the church do? It's only 120 people. Only 120 people. Surely they could do no great thing for the Lord. They were too small. They were too insignificant. Yet, as they preached the word in each visitor's tongue, the visitors gladly received the word and were baptized. And the same day, there was added to them about 3,000 souls. Just a short time after, an additional 5,000 souls were added to the church. The work of the Lord progressed so greatly, so swiftly, that the Pharisees were worried that the whole nation would be caught up and converted to the church. They began to persecute the church. They began to persecute the church. Killed Stephen. They drug men and women and children off into prison. Slew them. So much so that the church was then dispersed into the surrounding nations. Peter, Paul, the other apostles went about preaching with great success, as we read about in Acts. And before long, there were churches in every major metropolitan area in all of the Mediterranean. In all of the Mediterranean. Within 50, 60 years, the early church fathers then continued this work, bringing the gospel to Africa, to Asia, 
to Europe, England, and India. Within 200 years, the small beginning of 120 souls had reached the ends of the earth, containing hundreds of thousands of believers. We can read three books. Three God has given us. His holy scriptures, our own hearts, and the book of providence, or nature, some theologians style it. When we do, helps us interpret scripture like this, prophetic scripture. So much so did Christianity triumph and spread that these surrounding pagan nations actually started to invent religions that copied Christianity. Mithra, Isis, etc. They copied the Christian message in order to keep their people from converting to Christianity. No persecution, no silencing, or heresy was able to subdue the church's expansion at all. Truly, in this, the command of Christ was being fulfilled. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Mark 16, 15. Next, Jesus says that the seed grows up. It's planted, then it grows up. The Roman Empire, as we read in church history, fought hard against the church. But with the seeming conversion of the Emperor Constantine, some people debate whether he was actually saved or not, the religion that the Roman Empire had previously tried to extinguish became its official religion. Theologians began to crystallize the truths of Christianity. Now, no doubt, especially as we look back, we can see that error and truth were mingled at this time. But Christ's bride was never silenced. He always had his remnant. He always had his faithful preachers and faithful believers. By the 1500s, the great head of the church began to purge the error that had crept into his church. A great work of the Holy Spirit, a revival like the world has never seen, which we call the Reformation, began. Much of the world at that time claimed to be Christian in name. But with the Reformation came a return to the Bible, and with it, biblical Christianity. The seed began to grow up. They no longer claimed only the name of Christ, but also his teachings. What was once 120 people, 120 people, a small seed had become a great empire. But having been mixed with great error, it was purified from much of that error throughout the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries in order to prepare her to reach the rest of the world with the pure gospel of Christ. The seed became the bush, the bush, the brush. It was then pruned, and it became a mighty tree. Jesus continues saying, becomes greater than all the other plants. It's planted, it grows up, And then it becomes greater than all the other plants. By the 19th century in church history, the church began to send out missionaries as it had never done before. As it had never done before. They brought with them the pure teaching of the scriptures, restored and codified it, the Reformation and post-Reformation era. In those eras, doctrine was retrieved and codified. Revivals sprung up in the Americas, 
India, the southeastern seas, Africa, Asia, etc. Entire nations were brought to Christ. Awakenings were brought about, even in places inundated with the gospel previously. The tree had now put out her great branches. Now, nothing can account for this history but the finger of God. Nothing. This was no work of man. This was no doing of man. This was what Jesus said would happen in this parable. That the church would spread and spread and grow up. Though it came from a small, insignificant seed, a mere mustard seed. He then says that the fowls of the air shall come and lodge within the branches, take rest in her shadow. Soon the church became so large, the tree so full, that even the birds of the air could make her home in her. How do we interpret this? Well, it's been taken three ways. Three ways. The fowls of the air are taken three ways. I think each to be instructive and to our purpose, so we'll look at all three of them. First one interprets the fowls this way. That wherever the church has gone, it has brought blessing. It has brought blessing. And that is true. Wherever she has found a home, she has brought with her, the church, civilization and reformation. Period. The nations to which she has come have always been barbarous. Every nation to which she's come has been barbarous previously. The Romans were given over to sexual morality and materialism. Worshipping false gods. The Germanic people dwelt in huts, wearing furs, performing human sacrifices to their idols. The Africans dwelt nude in mud huts and hovels. The Native Americans wandered homeless with spears and loincloths. Throughout the world, heathenism caused men to be of the most debased sort whatsoever, dwelling in squalor, feeding on reptiles and insects bowing down before idols, and were so degraded and debased that during the time of colonization, there was debate as to whether they were even human at all. That's how far heathenism, false religion, brought these people to little better than animal. Little better than animals. Yet, to all these places that Christianity has come, so has civilization, progress, dignity, morals, and manners though this country in the past 60 years has tried to undo all of that. Regardless, where Christianity has come, it has brought all of those things. So even when the heathen have not been converted, they were reformed in manners and experienced great material and societal blessings. Even the fowls of the air, that is, the heathenish peoples of the world, have found blessing under the shade of the church. That's one of the interpretive Directions that people go. Second, some commentators take the fowls of the air to refer to individual believers who, like the birds of the air in a tree, make their home and take refuge in the church. Even as Reformed Protestants, Reformed Baptist Protestants, we should not shy away from saying the church is the mother of us all. We shouldn't. We cannot be severed from the church. We are nothing without the church. Jesus didn't make a bunch of individuals to wander around. No. He created a body. 
his body, his bride, the Christian who neglects the church shall wither and die outside of her walls. In the church, God's people have recourse to spiritual food, to rest, shade or comfort, shelter, which is protection from false doctrine and from wolves. That's what the church offers, the branches. Christ has given us the church. He has given us one another, whether in our local bodies, our local gatherings and congregations, or amongst any other Christian within the visible church. He's given us pastors and teachers. He's given us the scriptures to instruct us and guide us, from which those pastors and teachers are to feed us. If nothing else, may that brief excursus lead us to love the church more and see our great need of the church. For it is the means of Christ and blessing his people. A third way interpreters take it is that the fowls of the air are false professors who, like predatory birds, come in and perch on the branches of the church to do her harm, to do much damage. Jude warns of these in verse 4. He says, For there are certain men crept in unawares, who are before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turned the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. False prophets, false Christs, antichrists have and will continue to arise to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. That's what Christ says. The Apostle John says this in 1 John. He warns us about this. That there will be some who will creep in. Second Peter, the Apostle Peter warns us. There will be false teachers who come in to the church. Enemies within the church. Liars. People desiring to benefit off of Christianity and off of the local bodies. Not serve them or love them. Satan desires, dear congregation, to Sift the church as wheat, as he said. He desires to consume her, to destroy her. He sends in his loathsome fowl to dwell among her branches. But these branches, if corrupted, the Lord Jesus Christ promises to cut off. The Lord shall protect his bride. He has prayed for her and he works all things for her good. Now, to take away from that second point, the church shall flourish and each believer in her. Let us learn that. That the church itself shall flourish and each believer within her. No matter how bleak the current state of the church may look in the West, Christ cares for her. Christ cares for her. And she shall not only be preserved, she will increase, the Bible says. She will increase. The gospel that I read of in the Bible is a gospel of power, a gospel of victory, not a failure. Though but a mustard seed in its origin, it, like the mustard plant, shall invade and pervade and suck the sap out of and place its roots in every area it goes, every part of the globe, every society. Every nation, every people group. The Western church may be languishing right now. I don't think that can be argued. 
But Christ's church in Asia, in India, in South America, in Africa, are currently flourishing, spreading like wildfire, revivals, awakenings. And not just temporary. Sound, theologically accurate, reformed churches are being planted and developing in Korea, in China, in India, all throughout South America. There's a massive Reformed Baptist movement, actually, in South America. I've had a few articles translated into Spanish and published, apparently of being, I've heard the report of them being great, of great use to individual churches and to institutions. Strange. Because here in America, right now, it's like kicking against the pricks. It's going uphill. Swimming upriver. But we must not lose hope. You know why? The scriptures do not allow you or I to lose hope in the church and the progress of the gospel. To roll over as the dispensationalists did and say, you may have society. You may have our children. You may have our morals. You may have our rights. That is not what Christianity does that's not what the bible permits us to do to go well hope's lost sometimes it seems that way that we're heading down a very dangerous road and indeed we are but christ will preserve his church even here in america how many faithful churches are arising even now and being pruned sifted the chaff being taken out the wheat flourishing It's a marvelous thing in our sight. The Lord Jesus shall grow and preserve his church throughout the world. But he shall do it through us. Through us. No other way. Though no nation on earth is without the gospel, yet countless myriads, countless, countless myriads of people still lay in darkness and have never heard the name of Jesus right now. Some nations are more dark than others. Therefore, let us heed our Lord's words. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And then here is our comfort. And lo, I am with you always, always, even unto the end of the world. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Lastly, number three, the means of expansion. How does this happen? How? Verses 33 and 34. And with many such parables spake he the word unto them, as they were able to hear it. But without a parable spake he not unto them. And when they were alone, he expounded all things to his disciples, the means of expansion. Lastly, we have to ask, how? How does the church expand? We believe that it will. Jesus says that it will. The mustard plant will expand. Okay? How? By what means? Well, it must be, and it is, both a human and a divine work. We read that Christ, with many such parables, spake the word unto them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, spake he not unto them. So the word, the word of God, the word preached, 
first by Christ, then by the apostles, and now by us, is imperative. It must happen. But without the inward work of the Holy Spirit working with and in the word to illuminate human minds, none shall ever be saved. Because we also read that when they were alone, Jesus expounded all of these things, all of these parables to his disciples. If Christ does not teach us by his Holy Spirit, we shall know nothing, we cannot be saved. Therefore, we see that both human responsibility and God's sovereignty must be employed in the church's expansion. In two ways, gospel preaching. So number one, gospel preaching. I said this last week, I'll say it again, because it's still true. Without the preaching of the gospel, dear congregation, hear me now. Without the preaching of the gospel, none shall be saved, and the church will cease to exist, period. It will be gone off the face of the earth if we stop preaching the gospel. That's human responsibility. That's the impetus put on us. Even, with, even in light of divine sovereignty and the promises of Scripture that say that can't ever happen, it still is true that it will happen if we stop preaching the gospel. If we don't share the gospel, no one's going to get saved. And if no one gets saved, Christians will die off. There'll be no church. Even in light of God's sovereign work and his promises that can't happen, it's still true. It's still true. We, are, we, we have great promises, right, that, that can't happen. Christ will always have a people. The gospel shall go forward. But we also have great commands, Faith comes by hearing the word of God. And if it is not preached, faith shall pass from the earth. The mystery of the gospel, these parables, must be brought to the unbelieving. Sweet appeals must be made unto them to believe Jesus if they are to be saved. Remember that great gospel preacher, old school gospel preacher, Isaiah. He said this, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And Christ himself also made appeals. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you think that gospel preacher and Jesus Christ himself would have made appeals if appeals were not necessary, if the gospel didn't need to be preached? It's not as prominent in our day, but hyper-Calvinism, high-Calvinism, was very popular in the 1800s and 1700s. But we must remember, we must preach. The Apostle Paul also places the command on us. All things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. It's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we must, like him, go unto the lost and proclaim this. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 20. So you see, human responsibility. The Bible doesn't let us off the hook. It says, none shall be saved if you don't go out and save them through preaching. Through preaching. Not through acts of kindness. 
not by sitting back and trusting God. Don't sit back and trust God. Go out and win souls, the Bible says. Preach. That's human responsibility. And it is placed upon us with no excuse or recourse given. However, also, we need inward illumination. Do we not? Inward illumination. The parables are put forth to all who hear. They're put forth to all of them. There was many people standing there, a multitude standing there, hearing Christ's parables, hearing him preach the word. But it was to his disciples alone that these things were expounded, that they were revealed. They were given understanding. To them was made known the mysteries, but to others they remained without, so that they won't believe, so that they would remain in sin, so that their sins wouldn't be forgiven. Remember when we started the series of parables in Mark, we had that sermon. We must pray then, therefore, the Lord of the harvest, to not only send forth men to gather the wheat into his barn, but we must also pray the Lord of the harvest that there would be wheat to gather at all. That there would be wheat to gather at all. We can explain the gospel till we are blue in the face. And we should. But we can convert no one. Do you think that you can save? Do you think that you can convert a soul? You cannot. If you don't believe me, go try it. I dare thee. Convert a soul. We must do our part. That is, we must preach the gospel. But we must leave God's part to him. To him. This has been the failure of the modern American church in the past 30 to 40 years, has it not? It attempted to bring people into the church and to keep them in the church, whether they were converted or not. But in order to do this, they had to water down the gospel, lessen Bible instruction, and increase entertainment and relevant programs to keep unbelievers in the church. And what they won them by, that they had to keep them with. And they did not win them by gospel preaching, did they? We must preach, but we must also commit the effectuality of it to God alone. Not try to manipulate someone into saying they believe, and then check off a box. As Jesus said in John 3, 7 and 8, Marvel not that I said unto thee, speaking to Nicodemus, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, or chooses. And thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. So you see, it's both. It's both. Dear congregation, in closing, let us not despise small beginnings. Let us not despise small beginnings, the day of small things. Our gospel efforts may be but mustard seeds, either in our eyes or the eyes of people around us. But with the Lord's blessing, with the Lord's blessing upon them, they may increase and become greater than all herbs shooting out great branches so that the fowls of the air may come and lodge under their shadows. The church here in the West might appear in dire straits, but yet you can do your part. And it's the most important part. Pray. Pray for her. Labor for her. 
Stand on sound doctrine. Stand on scripture. Be dogmatic about what you should be dogmatic about. Mm -hmm. Make no exception whatsoever. Stand on those old truths. Disseminate the gospel. Remember this. That one gospel conversation, just one, one tract passed out, one scripture read, one door knocked upon, one child ministered to, may be the mustard seed of a great revival that shall change the face of the world and the course of human history. It's happened many times. Many times. You have to remember that. That you are not special and God shall use you for great things. So allow him to. One more conversation, just one more, about the gospel may be blessed of God to the conversion of that family member, that neighbor, that friend, that co-worker whom you have long labored with in the gospel. That just one more. Do you know? Do you know if it will or not? Are you wiser than the Lord? Do you know his ways? Can you discern his mind? Does the lightning bolt come to you, dear believer, and say, where shall you have me? Where shall I go? Surely not. Surely not. Therefore, continue in the faith, dear congregation. Continue in the faith. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For he who began a good work in you shall bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. When we are diligent in the Lord's work, We shall see the church growing up, putting forth her branches, and blessing the world. Blessing the world. Then, we will say with the Apostle Paul, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again come to thee, O God, asking, Lord, that we would love thy work, thy purposes, thy church. We would not lose heart in doing good. But we'd be given diligence, be given perseverance in doing good, in serving Thee, in preaching Thy gospel, and working for Thee. Lord, that we would lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel. Lay down our lives for one another. Esteem one another to be of more value than our own selves to mind the things of Christ, be heavenly minded, that we may do much earthly good, O Lord. We need thee. We ask for thy blessing, that we be encouraged to not lose hope in this dark time, but to be strengthened with heavenly power, thy power, and to go forth in the full armor of God, preaching the everlasting gospel. Jesus name amen amen